Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of New Books Network, and you're listening to New Books in History. Today I'm speaking with Fritz Bartel about his new book, The Triumph of Broken Promises, The End of the Cold War and the Rise of Neoliberalism from Harvard University Press. Fritz is Assistant Professor of International Affairs at the Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M University. The Triumph of Broken Promises is a fascinating book that fills in many of the gaps surrounding the end of the Cold War. What led the Cold War to come to a relatively peaceful end? What impact did the 1973 oil crisis have on shifting economic prospects? And why has austerity, ultimately the political economic formula, that the Western leaders embraced. Fritz, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Caleb. It's a pleasure to be here. Of course. You know, th- this is a, a really fascinating book. And, you know, before jumping into it, I'd just like to ask if you can tell us a little about yourself and how you came to write this book. Absolutely. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor uh, at the Bush School at Texas A&M University. Um, also a member of their Albritton Center for Grand Strategy. Uh, and I, I'm a historian by training. And so I um, I did my PhD at Cornell. And as I was uh, kind of flopping around trying to find a, a PhD uh, thesis topic, as many graduate students do, uh, I came across the, to me, startling and unknown fact that when the Berlin Wall came down, the communist bloc was $90 billion in debt uh, to the capitalists uh, world, both to, to capitalist banks and to Western governments. And this made no sense to me. I mean, it didn't, I didn't understand why communist governments would borrow from capitalist countries and ca- capitalist banks. And, and I didn't understand why capitalist banks would in turn lend to communist governments. And uh, that kind of counterintuitive fact, I then looked into it and realized there wasn't a great deal written about it. And that's, uh, as, a, as a young graduate student, that's, that's kind of a, a good combination to have, something that's interesting, important, and relatively understudied. And um, so, so starting with that fact, it, it, it produced this uh, 
kind of wide ranging and very uh, fun to work on uh, book that uh, led that that led me back to the 1973 oil crisis as the starting point uh, for this buildup of debt and this process of economic adjustment in both the capitalist and the communist world. And so uh, I started to focus on uh, how finance and energy, these two uh, massive economic forces in the world that we we can see today in 2022 having enormous impacts. How did those two forces grow in such importance in the 1970s? And then what impact did they ultimately have on the political outcomes of the 1980s, uh, which we generally summarize uh, as the end of the Cold War, the collapse of communism and the rise of neoliberalism. So um, that's the, the kind of short background to how I got into this book. Uh, and and it's been a fascinating ride, and I'm, I'm excited to, to share it with the world now. Yeah, in the introduction, you write, historians of neoliberalism have long traced its intellectual history, but they've paid less attention to how its rise intersected with the Cold War. So just, just to start off, you know, what, what is neoliberalism to you? And what do historians often miss about its rise? Yeah, so I define it in the book uh, as a political ideology that uses markets to uh, expand the, I think you kind of have three tenets of it, uh, expand the free flow of goods and capital across state borders, uh, increase inequality within state borders, uh, and decrease the government's role in providing social and economic security uh, for their citizens. I think I'll, I'll be interested to see how people kind of receive this definition. Uh, it was a definition that I worked on really to try. I think it's not, I make no claim to it being the only or the best or the right way to think about it, but in terms of the forces and policies and actors that I was looking at in terms of how this idea of neoliberalism that we think about or talk about a great deal, how did it specifically impact the events that we call the end of the cold war? These were the forces and the policies that seemed to be um, kind of most operative in the 1980s. So uh, I, I saw a lot of officials, not just kind of in, a, in Margaret Thatcher's government or Ronald Reagan's government, but also in the Eastern Bloc, trying to increase inequality within their countries. Uh, that, to me, was a, kind of an astounding uh, discovery, uh, certainly not something I set out thinking I was going to be arguing in this book. Um, and so I, I think what, what I, what I hope the book contributes to the broader discussion of neoliberalism is, um, is really a grounding in how kind of what geopolitical and economic circumstances allowed for these policies that we call neoliberalism to arise. Um, historians have for a long time, as I, as, as I wrote, and as you quoted, thought about its intellectual history. Uh, I think they've they've given a great deal of thought to even how it operated within one particular country. But when we look at it on a global scale, uh, trying to figure out how it was that we, we went from this paradigm, which you could call either embedded liberalism or uh, Keynesian governance or on the Eastern side, uh, state socialism, how that broad shift happened uh, while intersecting with the end of the Cold War was, I think, a question that, that we just hadn't really addressed yet. And, and I, I thought I might have something to, to share. And so that's what this book is trying to do. Your book sort of takes us to look a bit more closely at 
this really crucial event in the 70s, the, the, the oil crisis. Uh, why do you focus on the oil crisis and what makes the oil crisis such a turning point for politics in both the East and the West? Yeah, so again, this was something that um, I really kind of worked backwards. As a historian, we're always trying to find where our stories begin and end, and it's it's a it's a difficult uh, and kind of uh, weighted uh, uh, process to to go through. And I really just went to my actors. Uh, so I I quote them in the conclusion actually, but I was actually found this fairly early in the project. Uh, kind of East German officials on the day when the Berlin Wall is coming down, they're lamenting the fact that this major event, this this price explosion happened in 1973. And it, so it's in their minds in 1989. It's in Gorbachev's mind in, in, in the late 1980s that this, this major event happened some 15 years earlier and they hadn't as a block adjusted the, themselves to it. Uh, and, and so I started to try to tell that history myself to, to go back to the documents from the from the 70s, uh, the early 70s, and see uh, how communist officials and how capitalist officials were uh, were kind of trying to deal with this enormous crisis. Of course, it's a it's a crisis that poses, as I say, a fundamental challenge to the uh, the both the economic growth models and therefore the political legitimacy of of states in both sides, because during what I call the politics or the era of making promises in the first three decades of the of the Cold War, uh, governments on both sides had promised their people a dramatically and ever increasingly uh, better future, uh, and they were they were intent on delivering on that promise. Uh, and, and for three decades, what we now call the golden age of, of capitalism or the uh, or similarly, similarly in the Eastern Bloc, a kind of golden age of catching up, um, they actually did. They were able for for at least a good uh, portion of their citizens to deliver on a better life. Uh, the early 1970s, it's not just the oil crisis, but the oil crisis plays a substantial part, kind of throw this politics of breaking of making promises uh, into disarray because it, it delivers this massive price shock. Uh, it both creates the problem of stagflation as it came to be known in the Western world. Uh, and in the Eastern Bloc, it creates in particular this, this significant challenge and question for the Soviet Union, which is how much, of, how much do they want to protect their allies from having to adjust to these, this new economic reality? Uh, they're delivering oil and gas and many other resources to their allies at fixed prices. And so they know that it, uh, they they have a potential to to raise these prices to meet these new world market prices. But they know that if they do that, it's going to cause dramatic problems uh, within their allied governments. And so over the 1970s, they, they adopt this very slow adjustment process, which ultimately, I argue, results in them kind of giving up on their empire altogether. Uh, by the time you get to Gorbachev in the late 1980s. And so I think the reason to pick the, the oil crisis, the reason to start there is, is that it's really this global conjuncture uh, where it's difficult to blame anyone for it, right? Is it is it a product of the West? Is it a product of the global South? Is it, is it a product of OPEC? Um, it, it's, it's kind of a, an event, much like 2022, where its origins lie in many different places, but it then causes kind of long, long ranging and wide, uh, 
kind of widely felt effects across the world. And I, I, tr I try to trace those in the book, uh, leading all the way to the end of the Cold War by the, by the end of the 1980s. So, you know, when the oil crisis first happens, um, you know, what, what is the reaction in the West? Uh, you know, how is, how is this received? Obviously, you know, simply put, you know, oil prices go up, but, but how does this change the political economic calculations of the leadership of the West? Yeah, so it's, it's uh, a process that I think you could say Western leaders uh, realize that they need to adjust their economies to. Um, and the debate becomes, as it was then throughout the 1970s, do we kind of accommodate these price shocks with well, allowing for inflation? Uh, or do we try to get inflation under control and uh, do so at the cost of greater unemployment? Um, and and this is a choice that that uh, throughout the West they they try to uh, delay as much as they can over the course of the 1970s, and then uh, moments arrive where ultimately they they various leaders feel that they can no longer. Uh, kind of delay that choice anymore. And, and what they end up choosing is price stability over employment. And that's, that's the neoliberal turn that we now focus on, and particularly in the United States with Paul Volcker's rise in 1979 uh, and, and the turn to Ronald Reagan uh, thereafter. So I think uh, across the West, kind of coming out of the 19, uh, in 1973, 1974, there's this sense that uh, we, we need to do some sort of adjustment, but it's going to be uh, very politically unpopular. And so they, they ultimately decide to kind of accommodate these uh, price increases uh, in, in world oil markets uh, through further inflation in their domestic economies. And in the East, you know, that you have this, uh, this very interesting um, Sort of I, anecdotes, maybe the wrong word, because it's you know a significant exchange between leadership in Russia and, and in East Germany. Um, but you know what what is the uh, you know how is the Soviet Union impacted? Obviously, the initial prospects or what it seems you know the oil crisis seems like the oil crisis was re initially received very differently in the Soviet Union than in the West. Right. So. For the Soviet Union, um, you know, as, as one of the leading producers at that point of uh, oil and gas in the, in the world, uh, it, of course, arrives as a, as a windfall for them uh, because the price of their most important export commodity has just quadrupled. Uh, but as I, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, what it also causes is this new trade-off between their own empire or their own fraternal allies, as they would have called it, and their self-interest. Um, so you can see very clearly in, in kind of uh, 1974, as they start to adjust to this world of higher prices, uh, that Brezhnev and Eric Honecker and the various leaders of the Eastern Bloc are discussing how do we uh, kind of share this burden of adjustment between ourselves. Uh, because if they if the Soviet Union leaves oil prices very low, uh, their allies will do just fine. But they themselves, uh, meaning Moscow, uh, will have left a, a great deal of hard currency on the table, so to speak, uh, because they could be selling that oil uh, elsewhere in the world uh, for, for a much higher price. Um, 
On the other hand, if they if they choose to follow the world market and increase prices dramatically, um, their their allies are telling them directly that will produce the demand for austerity or the demand for adjustment within those countries. And for various reasons, in each of the countries uh, in the Eastern Bloc, there was there was a long history of fearing things like price increases because it would lead to political instability. And so these the, the various leaders of the Bloc were telling uh, the leadership in Moscow, "You can't do this because it will uh, it, it threatens uh, kind of the stability of our regimes." And so uh, ultimately, what they decide is that on this kind of rolling price price mechanism that that splits the adjustment. Uh, a little bit between uh, both Moscow and the Allies, uh, and increases over time, so that so that eventually the bloc catches up to the world market price. Uh, but what I argue, I think, you know, kind of moving beyond just the weeds, what it what it means at a very high level is that there's now this wedge that has been placed between the interests of uh, the bloc as a whole and the interests of the Soviet Union, the material and national interests of the Soviet Union, and and that's an interest that. By the time you get to Gorbachev in the late 1980s, uh, is is fundamental to how Soviet leaders think about what's in their national interest. Because we think of kind of Gorbachev as an exceptional figure in many ways, and of course, of course, he is. Uh, but I think when you look at the particularly the history of energy in the Eastern Bloc, there would there are, were many Soviet officials throughout the 1980s and and 70s who were starting to question what value these countries in Eastern Europe in particular had for Moscow because they, there was this enormous economic burden of subsidy that uh, the Kremlin was kind of bearing for their allies. And, and by the, by the mid and particularly the late 1980s, there are many Soviet officials who just think that this burden is too much and they're willing to, to let that go. Therefore let the block go. And, and that, that decision or that, that sentiment, has its origins all the way back in 1973 with with the oil crisis. So you know, in the aftermath of the oil crisis and you know, with with rising inflation, uh, what are the, the sort of the initial actions, political actions taken in the West and in the East? You know, you use this this phrase, the, the capitalist perestroika. Uh, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so uh, I was struck. It was another uh, instance where the archives uh, really kind of jump out at you um, that Soviet officials, both before the rise of Gorbachev and after, even after he had claimed Perestroika as his own particular program, uh, linguistically, it was just the word that they used for processes of economic change within the capitalist world. So when the IMF w- would impose something like what we would call a structural adjustment program on, uh, you know, a debtor country of the global South or something like that, uh, to Soviet officials, that would be the IMF imposing a perestroika on, uh, of course, a capitalist perestroika, a very different version of perestroika than what they they were doing. Um and so I decided to, to kind of call this process of economic change in the capitalist world, the capitalist perestroika, because it seemed to me that uh, if you look at it from the Soviet point of view, there were, in fact, many perestroikas happening around the world in, let's call it from the late 1970s through the 1980s. And so and the Soviet version was was just one among many. So um, what exactly did the capitalist perestroika entail? Well, I think it was. 
uh, uh, there were a couple of different steps. Number one, and perhaps most importantly, was the Volcker shock. Uh, Paul Volcker kind of shocking U.S. dollar interest rates, something that in 2022, again, uh, has become much more relevant or become a, a little bit higher on, on people's minds because it was um, one of the last times and certainly the, the most extreme time where the U.S. Federal Reserve uh, dramatically increased interest rates as a, as a way to uh, kind of crush inflation. It also crushed the U.S. labor movement. It, it had a dramatic impact on the uh, industrial mid Midwest. It led to deindustrialization or, or accelerated deindustrialization in many ways. Um, but what it did do is it uh, kind of restored non-inflationary economic growth uh, uh, within the United States, at least, and, and across the, the developed West. Uh, it came at an enormous cost. And so it's, it, it is, I think, the, the leading um, instance of the, the, what I call the politics of breaking promises in the West. Uh, the idea that a central banker um, or a central bank can, through interest rates, put millions of people out of work cause thousands and thousands of bankruptcies, cause a global debt crisis uh, that lasts over a decade, which is essentially what Paul Volcker did. The fact that he can do this and it's and that it's legitimized because of Western democratic processes, right? The U.S. Federal Reserve maintains a legitimacy to impose this kind of economic discipline that is simply uh, not available to leaders in the Eastern Bloc. Um, that uh, the fact that he's able to do this ultimately, I think, is is uh, one of the key facts. In fact, I, I call it in the book the key act of structural renewal uh, for the power for for U.S. power in the international system uh, in the, in the post-war period. So, um, without the Volcker shock, uh, it's not to say that it was the only way to adjust uh, to to carry out this adjustment, but but the way that it did unfold at dramatic cost uh, to both Americans, working class Americans, and uh, many, many debtor countries around the world. Uh, it leads to this renewal of U.S. geopolitical power in, in, the, in the country, uh, excuse me, in the world at large. And so um, that, I think, is the, is the, the first key fact, uh, the first key aspect of the capitalist perestroika. Um, contingently, but also very importantly, at the same time, Ronald Reagan, of course, gets elected and, and enters office with a with a program of dramatic uh, income uh, tax cuts uh, that uh, you know the Reagan tax cuts that uh, are now so uh, well known or either uh, liked or celebrated or disliked. Um, we we tend to think of Reagan and, and Volcker as a kind of packaged neoliberal deal. Um, I think, of course, their history is much more contingent that they weren't, uh, they weren't actually, uh, there's nothing necessarily uh, necessary that has to go, that they have to go together. And, and the fact that Reagan's tax cuts come along and create this gaping hole in the U.S. federal uh, budget, uh, in turn, creates this massive uh, influx of capital into the United States. So the combination of, of Volcker's interest rates and Reagan's tax cuts uh, create uh, what I call basically like a vacuum cleaner of global capital uh, in the 1980s, uh, where the United States just starts to suck up all the surplus capital that was going to other places around the world. Uh, that has a number of dramatic effects. It, it, in one sense, funds the Reagan military buildup, 
So this other key aspect of Cold War history, where does the money come from for Reagan's military buildup? Well, it comes from the rest of the world. Essentially, it's, it's, it is foreigners who are paying for indirectly, of course, but, but importantly, they're the ones paying for the military buildup. As the money comes to the United States, it's not going to the many debtor countries around the world uh, that were receiving it through throughout the 1970s. And so the global debt crisis, the sovereign debt crisis of the 1980s is the kind of flip side of this process of capitalist perestroika. Uh, as the United States recovers on the backs of foreign capital, uh, many other countries around the world in, in the global south and, and also in the communist bloc uh, are sent into periods of uh, profound debt crisis uh, as a result of, of the kind of twin actions of uh, Paul Volcker and Ronald Reagan. And so uh, those, two com- those two main policies in combination with the process of deindustrialization, which is continuing to to go on in the United States and, and across the West uh, are the aspects that uh, that kind of make up the capitalist perestroika. You, you know, to, to what extent when, you know, you see this, uh, this sort of shift in policy in the United States, to what, insta- to what extent would you say that it was something that was embraced by the people and to what extent was it imposed by leadership? By leadership? But, yeah, like, obviously, you know, these were... Uh, Reagan's policies, or that this was the you know government officials' policies, that they were the ones who were saying that we need to shift away from Keynesian economics to a new model. Um, and in different histories or different analyses of neoliberalism, some people really make the case that this was not democratic at all. That like whatever sense that this was democratic, this is a veneer. This was take this was elite, the you know the elites. Uh, in elite coup or something like that. And other people say, actually, you know, American culture was shifting. People were, you know, done with the era of big government. They wanted individualism. They wanted freedom. Um, you know, I, I hear these kind of two arguments. I think that, you know, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, yeah, and I'm right. kind of curious, what you, <laughs> you know, what your take is on this. Yeah, I so I do think, um, I quote, I can't remember the exact uh polling that I quote the, the numbers, but but basically uh, Reagan did win a substantial number of union households uh, in the 1980 election. Of course, the, the Reagan Democrat becomes the, you know, one of the key uh, figures in, in U.S. politics, this person who's shifted from supporting Democrats uh, and, and is attracted to either the language of economic freedom uh, or potentially kind of the coded language of uh, white supremacy, however you want to, or Christian revival, however you want to think about uh, the nature of the Reagan revolution. I do think there are dramatic, uh, um, there are key aspects of the American population that support this, uh, this, this broad turn. And, and I try in the book um, to present evidence that both Volcker and Reagan uh, and, and the broader Reagan team understood that they had this moment where uh, the American people were, were at least uh, for, for, for a moment willing to accept economic uh, pain uh, as a, as a uh, kind of price tag of, of this promise, this neoliberal promise of economic renewal. Uh, Volcker talks about how right after the 1980 election, uh, he has a, a rare chance, he calls it a unique opportunity or a rare chance to uh, 
marshal a national consensus around a policy of fighting inflation. Uh, now, I don't, I don't think it was a national consensus, but he, he certainly had more popular support than, um, than he would have otherwise. Uh, Reagan wins the, the 1980 election uh, quite handily for reasons that are not, you know, not predetermined. I, I think there's a contingency in, in that election as well. Uh, but I do think there is a, a broader popular support for this neoliberal turn, provided it's packaged in a in a language of freedom, uh, in a in a language of of opportunity, uh, which is precisely what neoliberalism provides Western leaders who are trying to get the government out of the business of making promises, in a sense, uh, and and allow uh, kind of create political sp- space for breaking promises. This language of, of freedom, individualism, and opportunity uh, gives them a, an ideological framework in which to do this. And, and that's something that's just not available, uh, of course, to, to communist leaders on the other side who had uh, long proclaimed their, their responsibility for every aspect of state, society, and economy, uh, and, and trying to come up with a kind of new ideological framework where... Uh, the government would not be responsible for every aspect of, of the economy and society was uh, was a challenge that they uh, really struggled with throughout the 1980s. So would you say that, you know, in this period, that one of the major differences between the East and the West was just this sort of, you know, resiliency, this ability to change in the face of new facts, you know, the new facts being higher oil prices and inflation, and that the East just didn't have this, you know, uh, malleability that the, that the, maybe the West had, um, you know, yeah. would you bring, bring it down to that on some level? Yeah, I think I, I it sounds maybe a little, um, it's not, I don't want to make it sound like it's all just like a, sh- a show and, you know, a game or something of like, how do we present facts so that the population gets tricked or something like that. But I do think um, there, you know, a, a good deal of the, of the literature on neoliberalism thinks about deep depoliticizing the economy as one of the key aspects of what, uh, what the neoliberals did, right. They, they create, they said, first of all, that the economy was a space in which, the government didn't operate and therefore it wasn't responsible for it. And then they increased by market, by increasing the kind of space in which markets operate, you're increasing that space in which, uh, at least ideologically, the government does not play a role. Um, of course, that's not true. Government has, has a, a chance to, uh, take as much control of the economy as it wants to, as we've seen in the last two years. But, in kind of setting the rules and setting the ideological framework for what counts as politics and what counts as economics, what what counts as something the government's responsible for and what counts as something that is just market forces, whether it's an oil crisis or a financial shock or something like that. Uh, that ability, it was, I think, uh, a key reason, if you want to call it malleability, that was a key reason why uh, the West was able to uh, survive this period, and and the East was not. So I think that this kind of idea of depoliticization applies just as equally to the West as it, uh, excuse me, to the East as it does to the West. Right? Uh, 
in a, in a way, what is Gorbachev trying to do? He's trying to depoliticize some aspects of the Soviet economy as well, so that those aspects can go through a process of, of economic reform. Uh, that's a very, very difficult thing for him to do. He ultimately fails to do it. But I think the, the kind of um, pressures at work are, are similar on both on both sides of the Iron Curtain. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so in the 1980s you know i'm curious what you know what what happened to you know maybe either third world countries or um you know other members of the soviet union beyond russia um or you know even you know western allies to the united states what was their kind of experience of this period because obviously a lot of the this new policy, you know, neo, a lot of the new neoliberal agenda um, occurred, you know, first and foremost in the United States, as you as you mentioned. But what was happening in like England, for example, or in other countries? Yeah. So um, I have a chapter in the book uh, called The Tale of Two Crises. It's about uh, kind of comparing the, the Thatcher uh, revolution in England to the Polish crisis uh, in Poland, obviously. Um uh, but both of these are kind of really, really important events in the respective histories of the East and the West. Um, Poland, of course, it's the rise of solidarity, This uh, the famous labor union that uh, ultimately triumphs in 1989 through the roundtable process. Uh, the, the Polish kind of that story is often told if it, just as a purely national story or perhaps as an Eastern Bloc story. Um, I, I hadn't yet seen it put in kind of uh, direct uh, comparison to what's going on in the West. And if you once I put kind of Thatcherism and the Polish crisis next to each other, what I found were uh, two governments that were essentially trying to defeat domestic opposition to economic uh, to their to the government's version of economic reform. Right. So what is one of the most famous, infamous uh, moments in Thatcher's history is the 1984 uh, miners strike, uh, which she ultimately defeats. Uh, similarly, you have a union in Poland that is trying to resist the government's attempt to impose austerity. Right. And and solidarity, in contrast to the miners in, in Great Britain, is able to build a national coalition that resists the government's attempt to impose uh, austerity, uh, and, and, you know, through 1981, uh, almost the end of 1981. Ultimately, both sides defeat 
what Margaret Thatcher infamously called the enemy within, right? When she was referring to the miners, she's able to defeat the miners. Uh, Wojciech Jaruzelski in Poland is able to defeat solidarity by imposing martial law. Uh, but one of these two internal enemies, so to speak, rises again, which is solidarity uh, eight years later in 1989. And one of them faces permanent uh, defeat, right? Which is the basically the the British working class uh, in in Thatcher's Britain. And so the the why do these two things kind of go in divergent directions? Well, I when you look at uh, kind of the the polling on, on why Thatcher is able to, to succeed, I argue that the state, the British state, because of democratic politics, remains overwhelmingly legitimate in the eyes of most uh, British citizens, whereas the Polish state, of, co- of course, has lost almost all of its legitimacy. And so solidarity is able to make claims on the Polish people that the miners in Britain just uh uh, are not able to do. And, and that produces these, these widely divergent outcomes. And that I can, gets to the, one of the main messages of the book, which is, uh, which I didn't anticipate arguing, but I think it becomes central to it, which is that democracy itself, electoral democracy, that is, uh, is a key feature of how Western societies discipline themselves, right? Democracy, um, because it provides a certain legitimacy to the government that's in power, um, uh, is is this key mechanism for how this discipline is imposed. And I don't think it was accidental, therefore, or or completely contingent, that many of the, the uh, that communism collapses in a wave of often democratic revolution, right? So when you look at uh, the roundtables in Poland and Hungary, for instance, and, and the democratization that, that comes out of it, uh, this is very, very explicitly, although, well, not really explicitly to the people, but at least in historical documents, you can see these leaders saying, we want to democratize in a way to kind of a limited democracy so that we can gain society's acceptance of austerity. Um, in a way, they're looking for the exact same tool, the, the exact same mechanism that has allowed Reagan and Thatcher to do what they did uh, in the West uh, roughly a decade earlier. And so this, I think it's a legacy that we have to kind of confront that often electoral democracy has been used as uh, one of the mechanisms to to deliver this discipline uh, to populations that often want to, to resist it. Yeah, that, that's a, you know, a really interesting conclusion. I also think that, you know, that sort of uh, also partially answers my previous question too, about to what extent was it imposed was neoliberalism imposed and to what extent was it accepted by the people? Um, and yeah, that, that's an interesting, uh, that, I mean, that's, I, interesting that's where, I, and I don't know, I mean, it'd be interesting. I feel like the book says it is both like it has is it is, it is like democracy legitimizes the outcome, but but it is precisely kind of an elite driven project that is trying to use democratic institutions to deliver that outcome. Um, at some point in the conclusion, I write the, the central contradiction of the end of uh, the collapse of communism is that um, the seat of government was returned to the people only so that the people's ability to resist the government could be transcended, could be overcome. And I don't think that that contradiction is not limited to 
the Eastern Bloc in 1989. That that kind of mechanism is at work uh, in the West too at an at an earlier point. Um, and and so, to me, it does seem that it's both kind of a, an elite driven top down program, but one that also receives a a democratic legitimacy. Before getting into the the collapse of the Soviet Union, because obviously that's kind of where the story of the East and the West are to diverge a little. Hmm. Um, you, you know, it's it seems like part of what you're demonstrating, um, and very effectively too, with a lot of these correspondences um, between different leadership in the East. Um, but it seems like what you're what you're really showing is just how much the kind of the fates of these different countries, these different, you know, the, the East, these two different sort of civilizations, maybe, uh, is the way to put it, just how much their their fates mirror each other, that, you know, when they're both experiencing growth, even if they're not necessarily trading with each other, that they're experiencing it simultaneously, and that when they are both experiencing the need to, you know, to break promises and to clamp down and to impose austerity, it's happening simultaneously. So does this maybe speak to you know, that there is something that is connecting them, maybe like the energy markets, as you know, you talk about the oil crisis, or do you think that there might be something else that, you know, is kind of might explain how it is that these two countries, these two, you know, the East versus the West, how does it these two, um, you, know, div- div- you know, dividing lines seem to actually mirror each other so much? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, I, <laughs> I don't know that I agree that my it's a major premise of my book and uh, that, the, you know, that these two things are or that these two civilizations or sides are ultimately comparable and are experiencing things that are, um, you know, not just coincidentally happening at the same time, but are driven by similar dynamics. Um, and I think I guess my my answer um in a limited way is, is would be that, as I say in the introduction, I think these were two different versions of industrial modernity. That That's what the Cold War was about at the start. It was a democratic capitalist version of industrial modernity, uh, basically built on the back of, of industrialization. And then there was, a, of course, a state socialist eventually aiming to be a communist version of uh, industrial modernity. If you accept that one of the outcomes of both the energy shocks uh, and financial globalization of the 1970s and the broader kind of economic globalization in terms of the rise of East Asia uh, also happening in the 1970s, if you take all of that as um, not as given, but as as things that are are were, were outside of kind of their any any one person's control, then I think the challenge becomes. Uh, how do we deindustrialize to a certain degree uh, be, while maintaining our legitimacy in the eyes of the people? How do we move to a post-industrial future while maintaining or, or the, the the promises that we had made before? Uh, and uh, Stephen Kotkin wrote in a, a, a book a long time ago, uh, I think it's in Armageddon Averted, averted that uh, the Soviet Union was uh, perfectly adequate or very good at putting up a rust belt, but it was not very good at taking one down. Um, and and that's essentially what the West did 
in in the 1970s and 1980s it it, it created its rust belt it took it it took it down um and 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 that's the process that the eastern bloc was not able to do and i think the reason that they're actually tied together the reason that i i think it's profitable analytically to tell them as a as a story that is uh, one of comparison and not just kind of uh each side on its own uh, is that is that they're ultimately facing the same challenges born of the same kind of economic contradictions. Uh, and that's this contradiction of moving from industrial stagnation into some sort of uh, post-industrial uh, future. My you know last question, because uh, I you know I don't want to discuss every single detail. There's a lot of there's so much in here, <laughs> and I really do think uh, you know it's uh, it's, you know, it's very clear that you spent a long time on this. Um, so I, <laughs> I'm glad that comes through. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the, the notes, the notes alone are, are extremely in depth. Um, you know, I think, uh, it, you know, you clearly looked at so many different documents. Uh, and I think any kind of comparative history like this, uh, you know, this, when you're just looking at all so many different countries, just the scale of the analysis is pretty uh, breathtaking. But so I don't want to get into everything. But you know, I just want to you know, for listeners to kind of get to the, the big question, because, you know, this mm. book is, is about the, the end of the Cold War, which is, you know, why do you think that the Cold War ended? And why did the Cold War end the way that it did? To ask you. So, <laughs> to do the simple question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the simple question hard. But the hard yeah. simple question. But Well, you know, it's funny, because that is, so that's the question that's where I started the book. I thought I was going to write a, I wanted to write a history of the end of the Cold War. Uh, and I, and combining with this qu- question of, of why the Eastern Bloc was $90 billion in debt when the Cold War ended, I wanted to figure out what the relationship between those two things was. And that took me into the oil crisis, that took me into neoliberalism, that took me into all these other things, to, which I, I, I do think are fundamental to explaining um, why the end of the Cold War came about. But basically, I think there's a couple of... Uh, uh, Kind of reasons I, in the in the introduction, I say uh, any historian at the end of the Cold War, you have to answer why did the holders of imperial and authoritarian power willingly and peacefully give it up? That doesn't, from a historical standpoint, that makes no sense. Um, you know, it, it was basically the the historically unprecedented part of the whole thing. So imperially. The Soviet Union gave it up, as I have suggested before, because the Eastern Bloc was now just such an economic burden to it that leaders far beyond Gorbachev, Gorbachev certainly, but uh, but many others as well, just had concluded if it we, we're not trying to actively give it away, but if we're not going to keep kind of putting out fires in in the block in order to to keep it on our side of the of the ledger, so to speak. Um, Authoritarians, why did authoritarians give it up? Well, that's because they started to recognize um, or they, they came to believe that that actually democratizing in terms of having elections legitimate, would legitimize their power enough where they could then impose this economic discipline that by the, by the late 1980s, organizations like the IMF we're demanding that they do. And so, so basically the politics of breaking promises, this pressure to impose economic discipline became unavoidable for leaders across the Eastern Bloc by the, by the end of the 1980s. Uh, and so that answers that sec- the, the second question of why did it happen in the 1980s? Like why the Cold War had gone on for four decades? 
Um, why, why did it, why did it go at that point? And often people just look at Gorbachev himself. They say, well, it was, he was really the unique figure. And if you, if you didn't have him, if someone else had been in office, uh, you know, the cold war could have gone on for, for many more decades. Um, I think there's some truth to that. I don't think if another leader had been in office, uh, you may not, you, you would not have had uh, perestroika exactly as it, as it happened. Uh, so I think the domestic history of the Soviet Union would have been quite different. I don't think necessarily that the uh, the geopolitical end of the Cold War, I think that still very likely could have happened um, because of these these pressures that I've been talking about. Right? Basically, the West had a great deal of leverage over Eastern Bloc countries by 1987-88, and many in the Soviet Union were no longer interested or willing to kind of protect their allies from those pressures. And so, so those, those I think were going to come to a head in the late 1980s, no matter what. Um, and, and the kind of unique co- contribution of Gorbachev uh, in international relations, of course, is to, to try to put all of those developments in a framework that uh, aimed to achieve a better, a far better world, uh, a more peaceful world than uh, than the antagonism that had come, that had been defining for four decades. And so, um, you know, I don't think his, his idealism, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty tough on it in the book, I think, in the sense of, I do think he has some significant material calculations that are uh, kind of uh, in the background of his thinking. Uh, but I don't, that shouldn't take away from kind of the, the genuine uh, idealism that he that he's driven by and i think was was key to the to the end of the cold war um maybe the last question then for the the end of the cold war why why out of the collapse of communism do you get neoliberal uh democracies in the eastern bloc and i think it's for the same reason and you know these are not kind of long-lasting democracies necessarily or even uniformly uh uh, they don't really achieve all that much uh, in the 1990s, even. Uh, but I do think that process of using democracy as a way to impose or gain assent for neoliberal reform, um, which is is the kind of key logic of the book, uh, that was what was driving events in 1989 as well. Um, whether it was, and I, I there I have chapters in about each of these things, the roundtables in Poland and Hungary and the elections that follow from them, the collapse of the Berlin Wall, uh, and German reunification itself, which was uh, a, a kind of massive historical process, 350,000 Soviet troops on East German soil just turn around and go home for the price tag of roughly 20 billion uh, Deutschmarks. Um, it, you know, it's again, it's not an accident that that ends up being a financial transaction. It's it's it ends up being a transaction because of the the financial leverage that the West has and this pressure to break promises that Gorbachev is feeling at home. And so um, so ultimately, the Cold War ends to, to answer your your question, uh, because this in my telling anyway, this kind of these economic forces unleashed by the economic crises of the 70s, particularly the, the oil crisis and the. Uh, and the financialization that, that comes from it produce a series of pressures that the Eastern Bloc finds uh, unavoidable 
by the late 1980s and, and produced this uh, dramatic period of political change and ideological, ideological change that uh, we now call the, the end of the Cold War. Yeah, that seems, uh, you know, a, a very compelling theory as to why it ended. You know, I, th- I, I and hopefully I, not just theory, right? But yes, <laughs> yes. And, 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 um, yeah, I, I think that, you know, with, um, with, I guess this is still, you know, recent history in a sense too. So there are still players that are still alive uh, and, you know, I'm sure there's always new, new information coming out. Um, but yeah, I think that, you know, you you do a very interesting job connecting uh, the seventies to then what would occur fifteen years later. And I feel like I, I would be, uh, you know, even though it's not necessarily directly related to the topic of your book, you know, so much of what you talk about with the oil crisis, as you have men- mentioned a couple times, echo things that are happening today. Uh, and I'm wondering, you know, as you're working on this project, if it maybe has informed some of the ways that maybe you might be interpreting things that are going on today. Um, you know, low interest rates, the potential for, for raising rates like, like Volcker, Volcker did, obviously oil prices going up. So, you know, do you feel in many ways like we're seeing similar things or is this just a, a different era with different, um, you know, different dimensions that are informing uh, how pol- policy response might occur? Yeah, well, I think we're basically, I think, you know, we have many of the same material dynamics at work, obviously. Um, We have uh, energy shocks uh, coming out, coming out of a period of very low real interest rates and and nominal interest rates, too. But basically, uh, a period of extended borrowing by many uh, different types of economic actors around the world. And what we've started to see in 2022 with, by historical, by Volcker standards, very small in, in, uh, increases in interest rates is already some of the dynamics that were at work in, in the 1980s, which is to say capital is flowing back into the United States and it's flowing away from the countries that are most vulnerable uh, in the world. And so, uh, you know, in the 1980s, that produced an extended crisis and not a great deal of, um, let's say, humanitarian thinking on the part of the Reagan administration or the IMF about how do you protect these countries, right? It was all about how do you uh, get them to become better, so supposedly better capitalist economies by undertaking processes of structural adjustment. Um I don't, th- I, I'm not sure. I hope we're not headed down the exact same uh, road this time. Um, but uh, I guess I don't, I'm also kind of a realist uh, in my geopolitical thinking in that I, I, I tend to think that financial interests will, will protect their own interests. Uh, the U.S. government will kind of protect its own interest and if it could expand that interest to say that and to think of it in in slightly broader terms uh to to realize that it's not really in their uh in their best interest to be imposing uh, harsh structural adjustment and austerity programs on on other countries around the world um then i think we we very well may get a different outcome in the in the 
uh, years to come. I, I certainly hope so. Uh, and in you know the, they can look at the history of in this book and and others uh, to to get a sense of uh, what not to do from a from a let's say a humanitarian standpoint. Uh, but I think we can all hopefully look at this book and see just the the dramatic geopolitical um, stakes that are implicit in major changes in energy and financial markets, right? One of the main goals I had when I started this was to just try to make clear to, I, I, I don't consider myself, I'm not an economist by any stretch or, or people, maybe people who don't really like economics that much. I want to convince them that economics plays a dramatic role in how politics and, and geopolitics unfolds. And, um, and, and certainly in this book, you can see how it unfolded in the 1970s and 1980s, how it had kind of economic forces had dramatic political and geopolitical effects. And so we're likely, I think, to see much, much the same in the, in the 2020s going forward, right? We're, we had a, a decade of uh, coming out of, uh, if, if you want to think of the, the financial crisis of 08 as a, a 1973 type of shock and a decade of, of delayed uh, adjustment or borrowing, uh, which is now uh, kind of coming to an end with these interest rate shocks, the, the, the years to come are likely to have dramatic political change, uh, not necessarily good change, but, but, but change nonetheless uh, in con- many, many countries around the world. Well, Fritz, thank you so much for being us in the New Books Network. Um, the book is The Triumph of Broken Promises, The End of the Cold War and the Rise of Neoliberalism. Uh, it's a, a really fascinating book and I think a great entry into you know, many of the, the recent fascinating studies of neoliberalism. So thank you so much. Thanks, Kevin. It was great to be with you. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. <laughs> 